Welcome to the Wellness Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to uncovering the future of healthy living. Each week, we aim to bring you content that supports your personal health journey through insightful conversations with amazing guests. We explore various topics ranging from healthy eating, technology, fitness, mindfulness, and more. Now let's join our host, Drew Monroe, co-founder and CEO of UpMeals, a Vancouver-based food tech startup on a mission to make healthy meals accessible through technology. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Hub, where technology, entrepreneurship, and wellness meet. And if you're interested in growing or starting a business and learning from industry leaders and gaining insights on wellness and mindfulness, you are in the right place. So please stay with us. Every single week, we're hosting inspiring guests discussing important topics designed to help you improve your life, both personally and professionally. And today, we have one of Canada's most renowned chefs joining us on the program. We're very lucky, and he's also become one of the industry's strongest voices on sustainable seafood and healthy oceans. He's got a decorated career as a chef working in some of the country's finest establishments, but he's also a highly sought-after educator, keynote speaker, and advocate for sustainability. And tonight, we're going to learn more about his amazing journey his insights on how we can make better choices for our oceans and how to build a purpose-driven life and career. Our guest tonight is Chef Ned Bell, currently the partner and executive chef at the Naramata Inn and one of the driving forces behind change in Canada's culinary scene. And a reminder, as always, please don't be shy with your questions. We'll be answering them all throughout the show. So please type them into Facebook, into YouTube, into Instagram, wherever you happen to be watching. Thank you so much again for tuning in. And without further ado, please welcome our special guest this evening, Chef Ned Bell. Ned, welcome to the Wellness Hub. Hey, Drew. Good, uh, good evening. How are you? Doing very well, Chef. And, you know, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You have such an incredible culinary background, working at some of the top establishments in BC. And, you know, I'm just curious, when did you first fall in love with food and see it as something that you wanted to dedicate your life to? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, luckily, we have lots of time today because it's a it's a relatively <laughs> long journey. You know, I'm the product of a great home economics teacher. Uh, I went to high school long time ago. Uh, I was actually born in the Okanagan, but raised on Vancouver Island and uh, and then my teenage years in Vancouver. And, you know, I wasn't the best student, but I was a pretty good athlete. And uh, and home ec was the uh, period before rugby. So I spent a lot of time in home ec focused on doing my tasks and getting out of uh, home economics so I could get on the rugby pitch. But, you know, my very first job was washing dishes at 14 mm -hmm. years old at a little restaurant in Vancouver. Um, in fact, some uh, uh, one of my very good friends still to this day was the sous chef at the time. And I quickly fell in love with hospitality. I quickly fell in love with food. I was, mm -hmm. uh, be honest, I was a pretty chubby kid. And I absolutely <laughs> loved the fact that... Uh, you could just go in the walk-in and there was free apple crumbles <laughs> to eat at all times. It was just like... What? Really? Wow. You had unlimited apple crumbles at this well, restaurant? I oh, didn't. Oh, but okay. I but they I were did. there. Yeah, they were yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So I remember the, the sous chef. His name yeah. is Dennis Green. He's still, uh, he's still, you know, one of the... He's a great guy and still in the, in the business. Anyway, he walked in behind me one day after he realized what I was doing. He's like, you know, Ned, 
you can't just eat all the that's, apple crumble. That's, that's not how this works. Yeah. We... <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I, I almost think immediately, in fact, prior to that, my parents used to host a lot of fancy parties and I was the underage bartender pouring triples uh, when I should have been pouring singles uh, for my parents' friends. And, you know, I fell in love with it. I, I, I knew I wanted to be a chef at a young age. I went to culinary school right after high school. And uh, truthfully, from that first moment, I walked into the De Brule French Culinary School. Mm. Rob, Rob Feeney was an instructor. And wow. uh, the next seven years of mine were, were under his tutelage. And, you know, I, I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I just absolutely love what I do. And I've had a long career. That's amazing. And isn't it, you know, you and I have something in common and that both of us sort of came from one really brilliant, passionate home economics teacher. Isn't it amazing how one, one person can shape the trajectory of your life at an early age at some, at that really formative point. It's absolutely incredible uh, hear, hearing you talk about that. And, and, you know, you had such a, you had such a rich culinary background, but you've also become such a prominent voice for sustainability of, of our seafood, of our, of our ocean health. And, I'm curious how that part of your career took off. When did you decide that, you know, just cooking food, you know, wasn't necessarily enough, but there was also this component of advocating and educating that you wanted to be a part of? Yeah, you know, I was born on a farm in the Okanagan. Um, very fortunate I'm back here in the Okanagan now, but uh, raised on the ocean uh, just off of Vancouver Island and quickly fell in love with, you know, the wilds uh, of this ecosystem and, and recognized the importance of it. I mean, I grew up fishing for my dad with, uh, fishing with my dad, I should say, for wild salmon. And, you know, there was something magical about wild uh, and foraged ingredients that we could just go gather and consume. My parents were hippies. Uh, you know, I, I mm. they were both uh, university graduates, but sort of revolting against their parents. And so they moved up to the Okanagan and I was, my dad was one of the first hydroponic tomato farmers, uh, you know, back in the early seventies, although I'm pretty sure he was growing other things. Hydroponically. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. okay. We can talk about anything on this podcast. Yeah. I mean, my name, my name is Ned after all. So you know, <laughs> clearly there was, uh, there was some, uh, some herb going on. Um, mm. But, you know, I grew up around uh, orchards and cherries and peaches and apples and, and then spent, you know, formative years just focused on the ecosystem. And, you know, mm -hmm. the green the Greenpeace movement started in the early 70s in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, veganism, vegetarianism, you know, e ecosystem health has always been a part of our West Coast lifestyle. And so I, I don't remember a time where I didn't care or my parents or my peers didn't care about the ecosystem. And, you know, the truth is the ecosystem has been in trouble ever since. And, mm -hmm. and I think that only when I recognized that I had a, uh, an opportunity to educate through food, did I realize how, how powerful that was and how important that was. And, you know, I, I get to make it delicious. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, it's like a, it's this incredible gift that I get to engage with people from coast to coast to coast and around the world on the importance of healthy lakes, oceans and rivers and soil systems. You know, food is the one thing that connects every human. We mm -hmm. all have to eat. You know, some of us uh, get to eat a little bit more and a little bit differently than others. But when you grow up on the coast, when you grow up on the ocean, you recognize just how unbelievably fortunate we are here and in Western Canada and the Western mm. in what in Western North America. And 
and to be Canadian, you know, I mean, we, 12,000 years of First Nations and Indigenous histories before us that were mm -hmm. conscious consumers and, you know, stewards of the ecosystem. And now if it isn't the most important thing we should be focused on, I, uh, I just don't know what is other than, you know, our own personal health. Um, you know, we have no future if we don't focus on a, where our food comes from B, you know, paying a fair price for a fisher's or a harvester's catch. And, uh, you know, we just get to make it tasty. That's absolutely brilliant way of phrasing it. And, and the way that you describe the, the, the relationships between all of these parties that ultimately come together to make something delicious is, is, is amazing. And you took that into a role. Uh, it actually held the role of executive chef with, with OceanWise that I want to spend a bit of time talking about here because I think it's so important. You know, this is a globally focused conservation organization. And, you know, we might have some listeners here that aren't familiar with it. So maybe what is OceanWise and why is it so important? Yeah, absolutely. Well, OceanWise started, you know, almost 20 years ago and, and it was uh, really on the backs of a great organization, uh, in California called the Seafood Watch Program at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Oceanway started in 2005 and, mm. you know, a, a fabulous peer of mine, Chef Rob Clark, was really the driving force behind that and, and some incredible marine biologists and forward thinking stewards of our ecosystem at the Vancouver Aquarium. And it was really built to help chefs and the people that we feed make the best choices when mm. it comes to the seafood we consume, whether it's wild or farmed, whether it's local or imported, whether it's fresh or frozen, you know, whatever the conversation may be around seafood, uh, whether it's, you know, from fresh lakes and rivers, whether it's from, uh, you know, one of the five oceans around the world, um, it really is an extraordinary conversation. Two billion people rely on the world's oceans for their daily source of protein, their daily source of protein. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, you know, extraordinary. You know, we... <sighs> It's not our right to eat all the wild fish in the ocean. We long ago stopped eating wild animals on land, at least mm -hmm. as you know, our daily sustenance. We farm raise animals for our consumption. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you do eat animals, of course, I mean, you know, my diet even, you know, ha has evolved immensely over the last 48 years on the planet. Now mm -hmm. I really focus on plant-based nutrient dense ingredients being the center of the plate with sustainability as the garnish. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because I, I, uh, you know, there's a note here from, from somebody uh, from De Brule. That's fantastic. Uh, oh, Ned, wow. is that Margaret Chisholm? I wonder if that's, we, Margaret. we have, yeah, we have a, a mutual contact and I know Margaret messaged me here that she, she absolutely was looking forward to our, to our show tonight. So oh my God. A, a, absolutely. That is, that is Margaret. We'll get to her. We'll get to her question. Oh, it looks like there. She says, you were a very fine student at DeBrawl. <laughs> so you've got very high praise there coming from uh, from Chef Mar from Chef Margaret. <laughs> I, I can't I can't even begin to uh, th that. Margaret Chisholm is one of only two mentors I have in my life. One is her. She was my mm. very first chef instructor. Rob Feeney, uh, you know, was one was another one at the time. But really, my other mentor is Michelle Jacob, Chef mm. Michelle Jacob from La Crocodile. Mm. Um, and, and I was just really fortunate to be around great educators who cared, who influenced, who, you know, they don't know anything if you're going to be anything at the beginning of your career. But, you know, I, I was just really fortunate from a very young age to be surrounded by 
great, uh, inspiring humans, first of all. And, you know, Margaret's career is, you know, 40 plus years of leading the industry. And, and now I just get to be a product of, of her great guidance. And, and that's pretty lucky. She is a dear friend. I'm thrilled she's, uh, I'm thrilled she's here. She, um, she was absolutely looking forward to this and she had high praise for, for you as well. Uh, so, so yes, I'm so happy that you tuned in. Thank you, Chef Margaret, for, for tuning in and for your comments. Keep them coming. Amazing. <laughs> And, and Chef, I want to ask you something because we touched on the importance of OceanWise and, and how it helps both chefs and consumers make better choices. And we're, you know, we're in the era of, of, of Netflix. We're in the era of documentaries, right? And, and there was a very popular one that came out called uh, Seaspiracy, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. And, you know, there's so much light being shed on the misinformation, the poor practices, the overfishing, the things that you're talking about. You know, so so what advice do you have for consumers who to, to make better choices when they might just to be honest after watching a show like that, be completely confused about who to trust and where where to look? Yeah, well, geez, I have some <laughs> personal opinions of that documentary, but maybe we'll move on from it to, at this at this phase. And I'll just say this uh, consumption is complicated, mm. period. It's incredibly complicated. You know, we, Mother Nature still gives us wild fish, as I said, and, you know, it is not our right to eat it all. And we import 80% of the seafood that we consume in North America. We export most of the high quality, high value seafood that we harvest in this country. And arguably, Canada was born on the backs of the seafood industry, the cod fisheries for hundreds of years. My great grandmother is from Buren, Newfoundland. You know, we wouldn't even be here without uh, resource extraction, whether that's, you know, minerals, whether it's trees, whether it's fish. And we need to do a much better job of focusing on where our food comes from, on food security, on food sovereignty. sovereignty. And, and beyond that, I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to rhetoric. You know, mm -hmm. I have been on the uh on the wrong side of uh of cancel culture i have had you know a, a heck of a time you know around the beliefs that i have uh within the seafood space you know all you have to do is go to my website and see some of the advocacy pieces that i've that i've po posted to re really realize you know I, i'm a little bit out there and what i believe in mainly because i've put my boots on the ground of fisheries and farms around the world mm -hmm. for 15 years i mean I have done the work. I'm not just listening to, you know, uh, one-sided, um, you know, funded thoughts and beliefs. It, it, mm. I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but you know, it's complicated. I mean, yeah. you know, farming is not a four letter word. And, you know, I mean, people that tell me they don't eat farm fish, well, that's your prerogative, but when's the last time you had wild chicken? Mm -hmm. You know, like we eat farm raised animals for our consumption. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. if you choose to eat protein that comes from an animal, uh, it's complicated, whether it's cattle, whether it's pigs, whether it's, um, you know, uh, chickens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's certainly whether it's fish and whether mm -hmm. that fish is raised on land, whether it's cultivated shellfish, mussels, clams, oysters, whether it's raised in the ocean, uh, whether it's raised uh, locally, nationally, or internationally, it is not a black and white conversation. It is complex. Mm. It is complicated. 
And this is why OceanWise and Seafood Watch and the Marine Stewardship Council and the Aquaculture Stewardship Council and the Best Aquaculture Practices label, this is why they are present in the space. I call them my ocean guardians. They give mm. me um, scientific data that I can base my decisions on, not rhetoric and, uh, and otherwise. Now, that being said, it is complicated. What mm. I believe in is what I believe in do, do and based on the work that I have done. Many people don't necessarily agree with me. Uh, and I think that at the end of the day, we can continue to make the best choices by asking questions where what how who caught the fish that we are consuming and and let me let me ask you something because i agree with you this is a massively complex complicated issue it's not black and white and you're 100 right about that and and i encourage you to give your give your unfiltered responses there's no censorship on the on the on this podcast i want to hear your your opinion but in your opinion, who has the biggest role to play to move the needle in the right direction for our oceans? Is it the fisheries? Is it the distributors? Is it the consumers? Who who has the biggest role to play to take action now, in your opinion, if you had to choose? Well, consumers. I mean, yeah. we vote with our wallets, period. Mm. You know, I mean, the fishers only give us what we buy. The farmers only grow what we buy, right? I mean, it. you know... I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, who sells to um, a major uh, Chinese grocery chain in um, in uh, Canada, but they're they're based in in Vancouver. The amount of seafood that's going through these grocery chains and grocery stores is astronomical. The the tonnage we are pulling from the ocean is is destructive, and and but we need to consume there'll be 10 billion people on the planet we need to continue to hopefully be able to consume wild seafood but then if i i mean what i want people to do is eat more seafood that is harvested grown farmed cultivated responsibly mm. i also want you to eat more pulses and legumes and seaweed and interesting things you know i i, I have a challenge in my cookbook lure that i put out a few years ago called mm. 52 and 12. i want you to eat sustainable seafood once a week for the next year and then once a month Look at that beautiful book. Once there a we month. Go. Let's keep that up there for a bit. This is an amazing book and and, and I highly recommend. Is this available, uh, Chef, on, on Amazon or in, in bookstores? Where can people find this? Yeah, this is actually the third printing of this book. It's done very, very well. I want to lure people into the conversation of sustainable <laughs> seafood. But I was going to say, you know, so the 52 and 12 is I want you to eat sustainable seafood once a week for the next year. And then the 12 is I want you to try something from the ocean once a month. That you've never had before and mm. that could that, because we only eat four species of fish in north america we eat something white something pink we mm -hmm. eat, so, so we eat a tuna we eat a, a salmon you know some sort of salmon or trout we eat some sort of white fish and by far the most consumed seafood in north america is shrimp by far mm. and guess what 95 percent of the seafood that we consume is farmed somewhere else so yeah. we are consuming farmed seafood at astronomical levels. And most, I've been on farms in Bangladesh. I've been on mm -hmm. farms in Vietnam. I've been on farms in uh, Thailand. I've been on farms all over the planet. You know, I'd rather work with within my local community to make sure that the things that we are consuming, harvesting, growing are done in the most responsible way. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy things that are imported from elsewhere. I mean, 
I used to call my food globally inspired and locally created mm. only, only now that I, that I live in Naramata, do I get to hyper-focus on season and region, but you know, as you can tell, I'm excited about it. It is a big conversation. See, you know, the world is covered by two thirds ocean. Every second breath we take comes from the ocean. Is there a bigger conversation than the ocean? I mean, it it it, it regulates our weather's our weather globally. It impacts every single one of the almost 8 billion people on the planet. Whether you live close to it or not, it impacts you. Whether you live in mm -hmm. downtown Toronto, whether you live in Ohio, whether you live in Japan or whether you live in England, it impacts you. And, you know, in this global day and age of, of, of consumption and, and import export, you know, we just don't have the luxury of saying, oh, that help happens over there or I don't live close to an ocean. Mm -hmm. Most people don't think about the ocean because they don't live close to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know. And, and, and we just put up the Oceanwise Seafood Instagram there. If we can put that back up again. And, and this is perfect timing for, for a question from our audience. Just came in from Instagram. And, and you, you touched on this. Uh, but this is saying, how can we as consumers, as you mentioned, we make the noise with our wallets. How can we contribute to the Oceanwise movement? Well, like I said, it's quite simple. I mean, and it's delicious. You just, mm -hmm. you, you, you buy only OceanWise recommended seafood. You buy, you go, you support restaurants and chefs that have OceanWise recommended seafood on their menus. And let me be clear, OceanWise is not perfect. The, the, the recommendations of fisheries and farms is incredibly complex and mm -hmm. constantly changing. What I love about OceanWise or Seafood Watch or the certifications of MSC and ASC is that they're science-based and you know at the end of the day trust in science you know i can't wait to get my third shot you know i mm -hmm. I, I can't wait to uh to give my uh my six-year-old son his vaccine shot and you know maybe i'm putting it out there but i am i believe in science you know i'm the product mm -hmm. of it you know my grandfather was a doctor so you know there's lots of 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 uh of traditional medicines. Uh, there's also lots of, of medicine from nature that I think we can continue to, uh, to explore and learn from our indigenous and first nations, um, uh, you know, brothers and sisters. But the truth is I believe in science when it comes to fisheries, you can't hide from science, science, mm -hmm. science. Once you have data, then you make a decision based on that data. So you can read the data a number of ways. But mm -hmm. at least with data, you can make a decision mm -hmm. and and be comfortable in the decision you're making. If you want to eat wild salmon, eat wild BC salmon. If you want to eat, you know, imported tuna from somewhere else, eat it. If it's OceanWise recommended, that's the, pretty much the simplest and best way Canadians can impact um, the choices that they're making. And, you know, if you are even luckier and can support a community supported fishery like Skipper Auto here locally, mm -hmm and really pay a fisher a fair price for his or her catch, then you're going the other, the, the next mile. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like there's <laughs> always deeper and better, um, but it's not about being perfect. I'm not perfect. You know, mm -hmm. I need, I need to do a hundred more sit-ups, but you know, I, I'm happy that I'm happy. I only did 30 today. At least I did 30, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I mean, it, yep. I don't, I, I don't want, what I say to my chefs all the time is I don't want all of you. I just want the best of you yeah. while you're here. Yeah. You know, and I think that's all we can ask as consumers, especially after this last year and a half, like, you know, there, there's so many things that we have to navigate in our world around health and wellness around, you know, how to 
make the best choices. You know, I mean, I'm drinking coffee. Didn't come from here. <laughs> you know, I, I like chocolate. It's my favorite thing. Doesn't come from here. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's choices we're making. Mm-hmm. And and you you're, you hit the nail on the head again. Like after this past year and a half, with everything that we do, is do our best to make the best choice that we can in that moment, and use the science and use the data. And and I wanna I wanna ask you and switch lanes just a little bit while we're talking science based, because this is a concept that I saw from OceanWise that was really fascinating to me. And this is the concept of seaforestation, which I found absolutely fascinating. So what is seaforestation and and how can it be used for all sorts of amazing things in our ocean and our planet? Well, yeah, I mean, kelp forests, of course, that, uh, that surround us here in this country and around the world, you know, natural habitat for, uh, for all kinds of species, uh, rockfish and shellfish that grow, uh, you know, alongside all kinds of other things in the ocean, you know, they, they, they do so much for the health of the ecosystem, carbon capture, etc. And the interesting thing is seaweed's actually tasty and you, mm-hmm. you consume seaweed every day. You just don't know it. It's in your ice cream. It's in your toothpaste. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a Vancouverite, you've eaten more sushi, you've eaten, you know, your weight in sushi for the last 20 years. So you've had lots of, uh, farmed seaweed from elsewhere. We now have access to incredible wild BC kelps and also farmed raised mm. kelps that are that are going to become more and more a part of our diet. Do I ever see kelp being center of the plate? No. Do I see it being a big part of uh, our diets on a weekly, monthly basis? I hope so. I mean, mm. I love the umami that is seaweeds and kelps mm-hmm. and, and the flavor bombs that it brings to certain dishes. You know, I had I just posted a recipe for a for a clam and kelp pappardelle with a mm. you know spicy garlic and chili cream. It's just outstanding. Wow. It's like it's the perfect one pot meal, and it takes you like six minutes to well, it actually takes you longer to make the pasta than it does to make the sauce. Mm. I mean, shellfish are Mother Nature's real fast food. You know, eat more oysters, eat more clams, eat more eat more mussels, um, and if you can, you know, add a little bit of kelp into your uh, into your diet, you know. It, I mean, you'll be doing yourself a favor. It's a superfood. And and there's a question here. While while we're talking food and while we're talking consumers, uh, a question that's just come in from our Instagram that I want to ask you, I think it's really important. And that's how can we address the popular objections that some people have when they think about farmed salmon as opposed to wild salmon? Yeah, I mean, it's a fabulous question, one that I'm asked all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> go go to nedbell.com forward slash advocacy, and you can mm. you can read a very thoughtfully uh, written uh, uh, thesis on it. I believe in responsible aquaculture. Um, I believe in ocean-wise recommended seafood, and uh, we have for decades farmed raised fish poorly. Um, but we are getting better at it and better at it and better at it. We're realizing where these farms should go. We're realizing how to feed the fish and what we're feeding the fish. The conversion ratio uh, is actually quite good. It used to be not as good. Um, As I mentioned, citing the farms where we're actually putting these farms so that they don't impact the ecosystem around them. Um, I, I, I would actually like to separate the conversation between wild and farmed because it's not wild or farmed it's wild and farmed mm. wild bc salmon i mean it is the gold standard you know single most important fish in the pacific ocean if you happen to be a british columbian 
period. And aren't we fortunate that we still get to eat it? Uh, select runs at select times. It's, you know, uh, it, 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 it's an unbelievable species that, you know, we are all, the only place on the planet that has five unique species of wild Pacific salmon, mm. eagles, whales, bears, trees, uh, you know, humans, the First Nations say that we're made up of 80% salmon because we're made up of water. Mm. But you know what we've done over the last 150 years? We've impacted every single one of their environmental influences What through forestation, through uh, habitat degradation, through overfishing, through um, continued ship traffic, through uh, you know, all kinds of other impacts. I mean, all you got to do is go up the Fraser River on a boat and you realize how hard it would be for a salmon to swim home. I live mm -hmm. in the Okanagan. We have we have sockeye salmon in the Okanagan, uh, in Lake Okanagan for the fir first, sorry, for the first time in 50 years. Wow. This salmon has swum up, swam up the Columbia River into the Okanagan River, into Lake Soyuz up the river channels into Lake Okanagan over a thousand kilometer journey. I mean, talk about an unbelievably extraordinary, extraordinary fish. I'm moving away from the comment about farm salmon though. Farm salmon is easily here in British Columbia, the hottest topic, of the course. hottest potato that anybody could talk about. Mm -hmm. And it is again, very, very complicated. I've been on many farms, many salmon farms, whether they be steelhead, Atlantic salmon, Chinook salmon, we've tried to farm sockeye salmon. I mean, you know, we need to grow fish. Uh, I don't have all the answers about exactly where we need to grow them and how we need to grow them, whether mm -hmm. it be on land, whether it be in the ocean. Um, and what species it, it is that we need to grow. I mean, I think we need to continue, though, to challenge that industry to do better all the time. And instead of attacking them, I want to work with them to challenge them to do better. Because, mm. you know, when you're attacking someone, they just shut you off. Right. Mm -hmm. And we live in a capitalist society where, unfortunately, these companies will do and, and go where they want to go, just like big commercial fishers might, just like sport fishers might, you know, just like um, all the other influences and impacts that we have on, on wild salmon here in British, British Columbia through, you know, I mean, the impacts and the influence of tourism and, 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 and as I mentioned, ship traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Consumption is complicated. There is no black and white answer to that question. I could mm. go on for days about it. It's complicated. Yeah. Do I do I have uh, farmed Atlantic salmon on my menu today at Naramata Inn? No, but I also challenged myself to dive deeper into the conversation of wild BC salmon because wild BC salmon is not black and white either. Mm. And, I mean, you're absolutely right. All these issues are massively complex, but what I, I can think of no one better than to hold that super, super hot potato than you, uh, Chef, Chef Ned. And I, I think the conversations that you have are the what's super, super important is that you're, you're pushing the needle and you might not have the answers, but a group of collective individuals might once we start getting momentum and getting things rolling. And that's what's really exciting. And, and you know, I want you talked about the Naramata Inn, you talked about the Okanagan. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about that project for you. And, you know, you recently undertook this relatively new project for yourself. You became a partner, executive chef, beautiful Naramata Inn near Penticton and here in BC. How did that project come to life and why is it so special for you? Well, as I mentioned briefly, uh, first of all, thank you for the conversation around seafood and sustainability and ocean-wise. Mm. I'm happy to have this conversation with anyone at any mm. time. Just reach out, reach out to me and we can, 
we can continue it because it is, you know, a big, broad conversation. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, I was born in the Okanagan. Uh, actually, met my wife here 13 years ago. We married in Naramata. Oh. Um, we spent 10 years down in Vancouver, and then about three years ago, we we uh, we were approached by my business partner and his wife. Hey, pal, what do you think we take a run at the Naramata Inn? And <laughs> Kate and I had just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. Um, unfortunately my wife has gone through a pretty nasty battle with breast cancer over the last number of years, but, uh, we really looked at each other and asked the question, you know, we can be working hard anywhere. Why don't we, why don't we work hard in the place that we love? And, Mm. uh, and that, and that's the Okanagan and that's Mm. Naramata. And, uh, you know, this, this incredible place, the Naramata Inn that we were able to, uh, to, to, uh, acquire, uh, last February, perfect timing just ahead of the pandemic. Um, you know, it's, uh, it really, I think Naramata is poised to become one of the magical places in this country, you know, following on Tofino or Fogo Island or, mm-hmm. you know, all Sioux Harbor house. I mean, all mm-hmm. these under, you know, incredible gastro- gastronomic, um, world-class gastronomic focused places. And I think the Okanagan has a, as good of a chance as anywhere else. And We've been very fortunate. We're a little bit of a bubble within a bubble. It's a pretty magical place. And, uh, wow. and we have a very, very, I'm so fortunate. My team is mm. unbelievable. Our, our bread is really, really good. Thanks mm. to, uh, thanks to Margaret and, uh, and my two chef de cuisines, Stacy Johnston and Minette Lots are, uh, are really my, uh, right and left hand when it comes to the culinary program. Amazing. I, I cannot wait to make the journey up myself uh, and, and tell as many people as I can to follow. I've, I've been to Naramata and it's uh, you're right. It's an absolutely magical place. And, and you know, you referenced your the team and you referenced how important that is. I, I want to ask your opinion on something. I've been talking to other chefs about this on the show. As, as you're likely aware, we're having a very well-documented massive labor shortage in hospitality. And this has been sort of amplified by the fallout of COVID-19. And it really, it really does seem... Um, that more and more young people are simply not wanting to enter this amazing industry and stay in it for a long period of time. So what's your take on this? And, and what do you think needs to change for a lot more young people to want to enter this industry now or into the future? Oh, man, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be... Uh, I, I think all be, of us, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I wasn't able to open seven days a week this summer. I was only able to open five days a week. Mm. You know, I started cooking... Um, before Food Network, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be a chef because I love to cook. And I think over the last 20 years, we've gone through this real evolution of what the industry means and what it looks like to people. We also have had to hold ourselves accountable for the, the culture and climate that we've created in, in restaurants and, and uh, kitchens around the world, really, but, uh, but certainly mm-hmm. in Vancouver and in Canada. And, you know, I, I had, uh, I had a, a a very fortunate uh, journey in my career, but it wasn't easy at all. And, you know, I started making eight bucks an hour when I was 19 Mm -hmm. and then I made nine bucks an hour and then I made 10 bucks an hour. And, you know, that's the reality of my industry is I didn't get in Mm -hmm. this to be wealthy. I did get in this to have a career that I can buy a home and raise a family on. And so I think we need to do a better job of what and how we pay our people. We need to, Mm -hmm. we need to create safe, uh, healthy places for them. We need to put uh, their families uh, on an equal playing field to, to their careers. We need to give people um, opportunities to continue to succeed. We need to get out of the way of our teams sometime. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm still, uh, I'm working hard on that. And I think I do a pretty good job of it, but I'm still learning how to do mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, I'm a privileged middle-aged white man. Uh, you know, I wake up and my life's pretty damn easy, Drew. I mean, the mm-hmm. truth is I haven't had any hurdles in my life. And mm-hmm. other than my own alcoholism, I have had a pretty easy life and I need to, you know, I haven't had a drink in 10 years, so I've beaten that. But, you know, beyond that, I need to create an environment where my people feel safe and cared for. And I need to pay them well. You know, I need mm. to give them I need to give them benefits. And how am I going to pay them well in an industry where uh, average profitability is less than 4%? I need to turn some of that costs and cost of goods onto my guests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm lucky who I am and where I am that I can charge you know, what I can charge for, for, for lunch and dinner. Um, I, I haven't proven in this all completely yet, but this is, this is, you know, what we're certainly uh, working towards at the Naramata Inn. But, you know, mm-hmm. I think we have become addicted to cheap over the last mm-hmm. couple of generations. And there's just no such thing as cheap food, something, mm-hmm. someone somewhere has paid the price and, and, you know, I don't want to shame anyone, but shame on us for for being mm-hmm. addicted to cheap. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, we're creatures of habit. I think we can we can shift if we do it collectively as communities. Um, and I know that that sounds all you know perfect, and we live in this you know um, utopian world. But you know, we can do it if we focus on doing it together and paying a fair mm-hmm. price mm-hmm. for uh, for the food that we feed people. Yeah, and and you hit the nail on the head. I feel like all I'm all I'm asking you are these absolutely massive questions during this conversation. But you, you've done an amazing job, uh, you know, sharing your amazing insights. I you know I wanted to get on the big topics, and maybe I'll ask you something and change change the perspective a little bit. You've you've spoken about some of your amazing mentors that you've had, you know, now having come as far as you have in your career. What advice would you have for a young up and coming chef that's just wanting to get started in this industry now today? assuming they want to become an executive chef Let, let's say they want they want to go all the way and they're they're all in and and how would you help them navigate that yeah well i mean first of all don't be in a rush and mm. that's uh, that's hard to say but you know it's that 10,000 hours kind of concept right like i i was very lucky i became an executive chef really way too young, but it was because of who I worked for and where I worked that enabled me to do that. It was also timing of, of my profession where the profession was at the time, but Mm. you know, it's going to take you 10 years to become an executive chef in what, Mm. and, and, and that, you know, whether you're a restaurant chef or whether you're a hotel chef, whether you're a catering chef, whether you're a pastry chef, whether you're, uh, you know, an instructor or an educator, it's just going to take you uh, at least a decade. And mm. like, this is not a destination. I've been cooking for yep. 30 years. Yep. Like I am in this journey. Every decade of my career has been a different, uh, phase. You know, I've been an executive chef of a major, you know, five-star, uh, ho- global hotel brand for 10 years. I've been, you know, a, a restaurant chef for premium restaurants. I've been a corporate chef for multiple chains. Like it, there's no one journey. I mean, mm. what I, what I, what I am maybe because of my age and because of, of the fact that I was born when, 
you know, the, the early sort of uh, bad behaviors of my profession were still all we knew. I just, mm-hmm. put up, I just put up with it or I had, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I had to put up with it. I, I didn't think that there was a, an option or a choice. And again, I'm a white middle-aged man, so it, it wasn't that bad, but you know, I had many things thrown at me and many people yell and, and obscenities and, and, and the likes, but it's about um, making sure you give yourself the time to succeed because mm-hmm. Too many chefs, they come out of culinary school, they have some debt, they've, you know, one of the big uh, premium casual brands waves them a bunch of dough, you know, they go and they KM a store really quickly, they think that they're worth 80 grand a year when they don't even know how to butcher a, a wild BC salmon or whatever, because everything they get comes in portioned and, and mm. you know, they, they may have gone into the prep hall for a little while that really they're, you know, there's many different types of chefs, right? I mean, there's not one... Uh, there's not one chef. I, you know, I was traditionally trained in classical French cuisine. That's one style. That doesn't mean I'm better than somebody else. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly not in the world of of global influence and chefs mm-hmm. coming from India or Japan or China or Asia or you know all over Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, European trained chefs are very different. Like it's, you know, you may want to learn how to be the best baker, best pastry chef, best pasta person you know i was very fortunate to have a a pastry chef who took me under his wing early on at de Brule, a guy by the name of kurt ebert who he said to me you know you should go to pastry school first because it will make you a better chef it's the beginning and mm. the end of any great interesting meal. well if you think about it pastry yeah. kitchen is the beginning and the end of any great you're meal. right and so for you're me absolutely right that really gave me a sort of leg up early on. And, you know, I was an apprentice at La Crocodile and, and, you know, we opened Lumiere in 95 and, you know, I, I wasn't in a rush. Like, I mean, I, I guess I was, but I knew that I was going to be in the career for my life. I thought, and to me that could have been 10 years, let alone now 30. Um, But I love to cook and I love, people i do more cooking at home than i do in my own kitchen because i just love feeding my people you know Mm. like if you don't love cooking i don't want to say don't be a chef but like you have to love cooking you have to love and you know i'm the highest paid dishwasher there is like if i need to get into the dish area i'm in the dish area if i need to you know, uh, scrub the floors, I'll scrub the floors. I mean, I'm very lucky that that doesn't have to happen very often for me, but I've been in the dish area many a Saturday night up here in Naramata when it's 35 degrees outside and 50 degrees in the kitchen. And my cooks Mm. are, you know, just bagged after doing 200 covers in a day. Like it's, Mm. it's not an easy business and, and, and I don't want it to be, I want it to be challenging. I love the challenge because the reward is so worth it. Mm. enjoy enjoy the process don't be in a hurry it's not not a career for someone that's looking for instant gratification in that sense in the terms of titles or roles or or recognition and and i think that's a a brilliant way of summarizing it and, and i want to ask yeah. your opinion yeah go I ahead i want to say one more thing because yes, I, li- I was listening to jamie oliver um mm. on cbc yesterday and you know i've known jamie jamie for a long time and wow. and the interview was fascinating. It was with Tom Power on on Q, and if you have a chance to uh, to hear it back, because it was just him talking about his career and how hard he's actually worked uh, on his career, and how hard he 
continues to work on his career. Yes, he got unbelievably lucky with the Naked Chef 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but that guy is testing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recipes with his teams. He prides himself on what he is and who he represents. You know, he he's one chef. So I, I'm not saying that Jamie that I have Jamie on a on a pedestal or anything, but I was just impressed by the the reality is the guy sold 50 million cookbooks around the world and he's still grinding it out, writing yep. the recipes yep. himself. Now he has a team that helps him and all that. But you know, I was impressed by that because I've only put out one cookbook and it was hard enough. And you mm -hmm. know. Here's a guy who's churned out, you know, 48 books or something. And, you know, in, or, or what was it? 23 books in, in 20 years or something. That's insane. That's but insane. Like yeah. nothing worth having comes easy, period. Yeah. I mean, for a few of us, it does. But like, you know, do you, you don't think Elon Musk has worked hard? I mean, mm. yeah, he's a bit of an odd character, but he's worked darn hard and he's brilliant, you know, like. You know, and there's just so much. Jamie Oliver is a great example. There's so much happening behind what people see, where people see this kind of funny, lovable guy on TV making these recipes and teach me all to cook. They go, oh, that's all done for him. He just has to go on camera and say these things. There's so much happening behind the scenes of everything. And and, and it's it's for someone to have that level of output, uh, whatever it was, 23 books, that, that's absolutely mind boggling. Well, you know, you um, do I, you do cooking recipes and things. I mean, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's it's a lot. It's absolutely it take, a ton of work. It takes a ton of work to be good at something. And I just have to give you a little bit of a, a dig. So I am the original cook like a chef. Just I know. saw I saw that I saw that I didn't I didn't do the the search to see if there was any uh, copyright claims to my to my captions on Instagram. So no, uh, no, I love it. I love. I just <laughs> the only reason why I say that is that I actually shot the pilot for Cook Like a Chef in 1999 for food network canada oh we man don't shoot. don't sue me ned it's just instagram i'm just i'm just i'm just trying to help people <laughs> <laughs> take it brother take it and run but i but i am the original and, and you mentioned like what i think elon musk said on his i think it was on his snl monologue he said something like you know i'm 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 sending people to the moon and i'm uh, you know democratizing electric like did you really think i was going to be a normal chill guy like of course i'm weird exactly. um like em, em, embrace it uh, that's that's part of it, part of the, your personality. And, and you know, I want to I want to ask you something as well. This is something that we talk about a lot on this show, and I just want your take on it. And this is the idea of uh, imposter syndrome, you know, as chefs are, or anyone in business is thrust into this crazy situation where suddenly they're in charge of people and they're running things and they're doing things and they internally feel wildly underqualified to do that. What's your take on imposter syndrome and 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 how to handle it? Hold on, I just gotta take a photo for Instagram. Hold on a second. Okay, okay. Are we doing this? Sure. No, I'm I'm oh, I'm just okay. kidding. It was the beginning oh, of my Instagram. Oh, oh my god. Imp okay. My imposter syndrome. Oh, there you we know, go. I was I, ready to pose. No, I, I it, did, <laughs> it didn't happen if it's not on Insta. Um, <laughs> I went to school and became a chef before Food Network existed. Before mm. there was, I mean, celebrity chef to me at the time was. Emeril Lagasse and Julia Child. Like, you know, there was no Jamie Oliver. There was no Gordon Ramsay. There was no, um, there was none of that other than Walk With Yan and uh, Graham Kerr, the, the Galloping Gourmet, like guys that are tw five times as old as you. I mean, we live our lives online. It's dangerous. I, I know for sure 
I'm worried about my, I have three sons. I'm worried about mm -hmm. the influence of social media on their lives. Um, luckily, you know, my wife and I focus pretty hard on, on balance in their lives through what they eat, through you know, how much they consume, um, you know, online and, and also, you know, a healthy dose of, uh, of sports, uh, and just love and affection, um, mm. and, and laughter and good times and goofing around. Mm. Um, you know, I know for sure that the majority of what I post online is, is, is factual through a certain lens. Like you don't want to know all the junk of my day and I don't want to know all the junk of your day. I know for sure you've got a lot going on in your life that is pretty hard and junky. So do I, so does everybody. I mean, life's hard in the last year and a half, it's been really hard. So am I, do I struggle with imposter syndrome? No, because I know I'm one of the best cooks in the room. Cause I put in the work. Like mm. I, I've been in the game for a long time. Mm. I've, I've, you know, I, this is like, if this was a title fight, I'm in, I'm in like the seventh round and I have been, I've been knocked out. <laughs> I've had a restaurant, I've had a restaurant go under that I'm still paying off from 2008. Mm. I have been fired. I've had multiple careers uh, in different facets of culinary would most people know all that about me? No. And I don't really need them to. I mean, if they mm. ask, I'll tell them I'm an mm. alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 10 years. I could care mm. less. It's freeing. The truth is freeing. What do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I have, you know, I have um, way more success than failure, but gosh, I've had a lot of failure and the failure has made me confident. Like mm. truthfully, my failures have made me confident, not my successes. Cause I know I can take a leap. And even if that, I mean, I moved to Naramata and bought a, a night, an inn built yeah. in 1908. There was no guarantee. This was a leap of faith. Like wow. now I'm lucky. I have my wife, my partner. I have my other mm -hmm. two partners. Like there's lots of, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call them parachutes. Cause you know, if I have another restaurant go under, it's going to be painful. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, support. You've got support. You've got the right people around you. I yeah. built a, a great team around yeah. me. I, I mentioned my two chef de cuisine, Stacy and Manette are, pastry chef, Liz Stevenson, my, my AGM, you know, Lisa mm -hmm. Badsvik. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. my wine director, Emily Walker, I have an incredible team of human beings that make us great. And, you know, I used to think it was all about being the best, like number one, you know, like if I don't win number one restaurant in Van Mag, it, you know, I won't succeed. I, I, I could care less as long as I'm in mm. the party and, and invited to, to participate. That's all I care about. And, and if I make guests happy and they love what they eat and they share with me the fact that they enjoyed their meal, even though the portion might be too big and they're really full, like who cares? <laughs> they had a good meal. And, and you know what? I can tell them where everything came from on that plate. That matters to me. One of the, one of the best takes on imposter syndrome we've had here to date on the show. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, amazing. And I want to ask you one question about Something else that's important. We, you know, our industry is notorious for for burnouts, for for just burning through people with long hours, demanding work. You know, how do you unwind? You've got all this stuff going on. What advice do you have for people or yourself that you know are trying to find that balance that they're looking for and making time and prioritizing time for themselves for wellness? Uh, nature, mm. fitness, um, mm. diet. Uh, you know, I I. You know, I drink way too much coffee. I spend way too much time in the forest and I spend way too much time on my bike. 
but even, you know, I say way too much time. I mean, I wish I could quadruple the amount of time I do all of those things. I wish I could sleep more. I wish I could do more yoga. I mean, it's, it's a journey. It's about balance. You know, I'm going to turn 50 in a few years. I want to be cooking until I'm in my sixties. I, I know I will be, and I want to be able to do it. You know, Michelle mm-hmm. Jacob, my mentor, you know, he's in his sixties and he still cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, his days are shorter and his weeks might be shorter and maybe he takes an extra couple of weeks vacation, but the guy's still in the kitchen, mm-hmm. 30 plus years of, of La Crocodile. Mm-hmm. That's who I look up to. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you know, and there's, again, there's lots of journeys. I mean, you know, Rob Feeney's got his own journey and chef Margaret Chisholm has her own journey. And, you know, I mean, so many of my peers who I, who I hold dearly, have had their own completely unique journeys and all of our journeys. I think, I mean, Margaret, I know for sure she spends a ton of time on the river and on mm-hmm. and in the forest with her lovely bride. And, you know, I think the truth is it's being around the people you love sharing a meal, caring about what you're consuming, the people that maybe harvested it or, or grew it, uh, paying a fair price for it just being a decent person, you know, like get your vaccine already for crying out loud. Can we just, can we just be through this pandemic? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm also a realist. Like mm. life is life is, I don't know what's going to happen next year. I mean, I, my wife, I remember August of 2018, sorry, 2019 when we found out she had breast cancer. I mean, it was like, it, it was like a, it was like a freight train hitting our family. Like, I mean, the entire, our entire life, the, the, the rug was pulled out of it in like three days. Like, like you had this, we had all these plans and this journey and this, this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden woof, it's gone. And, you know, you talk about what one in eight women will go through in contracting breast cancer. I mean, it's barbaric, my friend. And that's not the least of which of all the other illnesses that we face, like live for today, enjoy yourself, eat well, you know, have more sex, like, you know, sweat more, you know, uh, have another cup of coffee or another glass of wine if you choose to. And, you know, just care a little bit more. Mm. I, I mean, I think that's that's just an absolutely perfect place to to, to wrap up our conversation. And, and I appreciate you sharing your amazing uh, insights, your story, your journey, everything with us today here on the Wellness Hub. Uh, Chef Ned, where can we go? Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and all the great projects that you're involved in? Uh, well, I mean, social, obviously, it's at Ned Bell on all the platforms. Um, or nermatain.com, come and enjoy a, a, a feast and a getaway. We have no TVs. We have no phones in our rooms. We're like this little magical village, 25 wow. minutes from Penticton. I guarantee you'll have uh, an incredible time and you won't leave hungry. Amazing. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today, Chef Ned. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. We hope you'll come back on and join us and give us an update sometime soon. I'd be happy to. Thanks. Thanks so much, Drew. And thanks to the team behind the scenes. And thanks for uh, to all the viewers. Margaret, I love you. Wow. Holy moly. That was uh, such an inspiring conversation. I mean, it's not every day you're sitting here talking to one of the country's most respected chefs. I, I want to thank Chef Ned Bell again for hanging out with us tonight on the Wellness Hub, discussing so many huge 
important issues. And, and you know, what I admire so much about Ned is that, you know, he, he very easily could have been content with just an exceptional career as a chef. And, you know, one of the most demanding careers there is, as you heard us talk about, but instead he saw this greater mission and greater calling outside of the kitchen that impacts what happens in it, not only in professional kitchens, but in home kitchens all around the world. And, you know, after speaking with Ned, are you thinking differently about our oceans and about the way that we consume and choose our seafood? They're a finite resource. And just like everything else, the damage that's been caused by the overfishing and demand has been either kind of hidden or downplayed or played off as misinformation to the general public. And, you know, we've talked briefly about documentaries, Seaspiracy, they become popular uh, by doing really what Chef Ned has been doing for years, which is educating people on the importance of making better, more sustainable choices and having the tools and the information to do so. It was so inspiring to hear and learn how Ned's success in creating and invoking change was made possible through collaboration. You heard him talk so much about his team, his partners, the people that are around him. That was such a key takeaway for me. And it's it's very easy to look at a massive problem and go, well, what could I do? But having those conversations, passionate conversations with a collective of individuals that are motivated towards that same goal, it leads to powerful actions. So whatever your career, whatever your industry is, can you think of a huge problem that needs solving desperately and seems almost insurmountable? I challenge you to start with a single conversation with others close to you and enter it with no expectations other than to talk. And I promise you, the energy generated will propel you towards that first crucial action. Let us know in the comments what big problems you want to solve and what actions you will take to get started. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. If you'd like to see more great conversations like this, please remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Upmeals. We will see you next Wednesday evening right here again on the Wellness Hub for another great conversation. I'm Drew Monroe. Until then, take care and be well.